Welcome to Big Sky Christian Fellowship. It's so nice to have all of you with us this afternoon. Uh, we continue our study of uh, the book of Psalms and I guess some select Psalms. And uh, today's Psalm, Psalm 126, is very short. It's only about uh, seven or eight lines long. And it's all about tears. It's all about sorrow. And I just wanted to introduce uh, the concept of tears and sorrow and crying by pointing out uh, how, how much of our expectations of crying and tears uh, come, from, come from messages, come from songs that we hear on the radio, and even songs that aren't necessarily always true, and yet they influence our expectations. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out is uh, how many songs that we listen to on the radio that talk about crying um, that all sort of have the same general message, that general message being, because of my breakup, because of my loss, everything in the world will get worse from here on out. And a surprisingly large amount of songs follow that thought pattern. Going all the way back to the 1950s, there's a really beautiful, really beautiful song by Roy Orbison called Crying, which absolutely has that message. In the 60s, there was that song, It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To, right? I don't even want to have a party because I broke up and life is just going to get so awful. Uh, in the 80s, there was the same song sung by two different stars, Prince and Sinead O'Connor, and it was, Nothing Compares to You. And in Sinead's video, she, it was just like this close-up of her face, and she sang about the horror of this breakup, and, and a tear came down her face. And again, there's this message that ever since this loss things are only going to go downhill. Even in the last decade or so, we have If I Ain't Got You by Alicia Keys and Happier by Ed Sheeran. All, all to say these songs are saying life is all downhill since my breakup. Uh, it's only getting worse. But I think the best example of this sentiment that we should cry because we'll never recapture some loss from the past comes from Willie Nelson's famous song, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. I'm sure it's a song that everybody's heard. And there's this one verse in particular that says, Love is like a dying ember, and only memories remain. And through the ages I'll remember blue eyes crying in the rain. And we hear these messages so many times that it just sort of projects onto how we cry and how we think about loss. Oh, if I'm sad... It must be true that everything's just going to get worse from here on out. And I want to point out that line, which is really well-crafted, love is like a dying ember. It's kind of this, this elbow in the ribs that you will never feel the pleasant warmth of love again. And I just want to say, Willie Nelson, how dare you? Because he's been married four times. <laughs> so who is he to tell us that love is like a dying ember? Even his life would suggest there's joy in your future. So that's what we're going to investigate today. If you haven't already, please open up your Bible to Psalm 126. As I said before, it's a very short psalm. It's a very beautiful song. Uh, and I just want to spend the next, even just 12 or 15 minutes with a shortened sermon today, uh, talking through this in two points. First, I just want to point out the unique features and characteristics of Psalm 126. It's very unique. It's very beautiful. And then I want to talk about two encouraging lessons on tears that, that Psalm 126 tells us are true for us, right? You might hear a song on the radio, uh, and it might be true for you in that moment. It's not predictive of your future. 
the, the good thing about looking to Scripture is uh, we can trust that these things that are promised to us are things that we can hold on to and hope for and experience in our future as well. If you've got an outline in your bulletin when you came in, I did sort of change it a little bit in section two, so uh, it won't be as close to the outline as normal. Well, let's start off and just very briefly talk about uh, uh, how to understand and approach Psalm 126. And to do that, let me read it for you. I'll be reading from Robert Alter's translation. You guys hear me talk about Robert Alter from time to time. He is a Hebrew professor at uh, Berkeley University. And um, normally I wouldn't trust a theologian from Berkeley, uh, but he's an expert on the Hebrew language and his translations just so perfectly mirror in English um, the flow uh, and the succinctness of, uh, of the biblical Hebrew uh, in its original form. Let me read Psalm 126. It says this, a song of ascent. When the Lord restores Zion's fortunes, we should be like dreamers. Our mouths will be filled with laughter and our tongues with glad song. Then will they say in the nations, great things the Lord has done with these. Great things the Lord has done with us and we shall all rejoice. Restore, O Lord, our fortunes like wadis in the Negev desert. Those who sow in tears and glad song will reap. He walks along and weeps, the bearer of the seed bag. He will surely come in with glad song bearing the sheaves. Let's just talk about that beautiful <coughs> short song uh, in a few minutes that we have uh, ahead. So some unique and distinguishing features about Psalm 126 is that it's very short. There's only eight lines in the original Hebrew. Um, so we shouldn't have a half-hour sermon about it, should we? It's short, it makes some quick points, and uh, that's how we're going to approach it as well. It's very short, it only has eight lines in the original Hebrew. Uh, here's another interesting thing about Psalm 126. Though the poem is written in a time of tears, six of the eight lines remember joy or anticipate joy. Let me say that again. Though the song is written in, the time, in, a, in a hard time, in a time of tears, six of its eight lines either remember past joy or anticipate future joy. Now we've been talking throughout this sermon series, uh, we call it the treasure state, kind of a play on the slogan of Montana, and I've been trying to point out that the songs are sort of like an emotional treasure map, and there's clues hidden inside each one of them, and as we interpret those clues, we get this treasure map of how to go from one natural human emotion into a better, more pleasant, uh, more edifying emotion. And uh, Psalm 126 is no different. If you remember nothing else about today's sermon, remember that Psalm 126 is written by someone in a time of sorrow. Six of its eight lines remember a time of joy or anticipate a future time of joy. I think that's a beautiful emotional treasure map for us in our times of tears, in our times of sorrow. That might be where we are. It doesn't have to be where our focus and our mindset is. Let's wrap up section one here by just uh, uh, giving some insights on the tone and the content of Psalm 126. I think uh, the ingredients that go into this song are a mix of realistic sadness. Nothing's being sugar-coated. People aren't uh, ignoring their true emotions. It's got, a, it's got realistic sadness. It's got some nationalistic pride as to, as to who Israel is and what they've experienced. It contains some lessons learned. 
And it, of course, uh, refers to hope of better times to come. And all those ingredients actually remind me of a song that we're probably all familiar with. Have you guys all heard that song by Bob Marley, No Woman, No Cry? It's a really beautiful song. And uh, No Woman, No Cry is slang for don't cry, woman. And so it's a song by Bob Marley telling somebody not to cry. Uh, it's a song about growing up in Trenchtown, which is a parish in Kingston, Jamaica. It's a song about the hard times in his past. It talks about eating corn porridge. I've never eaten corn porridge, but it doesn't sound delicious, does it? It sounds like you'd get it in an orphanage. Um, he talks about how they had to walk around because they didn't have a car. But then at the end of the song, there's this message that, but we made it. We made it out of that into better times. And so I think that's a great entry point into all the things that Psalm 126 is about. The songwriter is giving this snapshot of a Jewish person who's living through hard times. And they're drawing encouragement from the historical memory that the Jewish people had been exiled before, but God had also restored them to happier times. The poem structure is saying, God's lifted us out of hard times before, and we can trust that God will do it again. The the songwriter, the poet, is poor. He's talking about farming by hand. He's thirsty. He's fantasizing about streams that only exist during the rainy season. Psalm 126 is, is written for someone in a hard time, and they're saying this is a hard time, but there has been joy in the past, and there will be joy in the future. So that's how we understand and approach Psalm 126. And um, just in the next 10 minutes or so, I want to wrap up here in section 2 by just establishing two things, two encouraging things, that we can forever lift out of this psalm that can encourage us in our own times of sadness and sorrow. The first one is this. Psalm 126 promises both tears, but also ascending joy. Psalm 126 promises the people that follow God both times of sorrow, but also times of ascending joy. Let me read the first three lines again. A song of ascent. When the Lord restores Zion's fortune, we'll be like dreamers, and our mouths will be filled with laughter, and our tongues with glad songs. Then we'll say to the nations, great things has the Lord done with us. Great things the Lord has done. We will rejoice. Again, this is... A song of ascent, meaning that when it's being written, when it's being sung, it's not good times, but it's anticipating uh, those future times. Now, there's not grammatical agreement uh, among translators uh, in these lines. Some think it's specifically talking about events in Israel's past that can be pinpointed, but others are just saying the grammar is just talking about these random general times in the past where things haven't been good, but... God has lifted Israel out of those things. Um, What I want to draw our attention to is the significance of Psalm 126's inclusion in the Bible. If it's a song of ascent and it's put in the Bible, it's telling us that there's going to be times that we need to have our spirits lifted. It's telling us there's going to be times where there is sorrow and tears in our lives. And so Psalm 126 is offering bad news and it's offering good news. The bad news is that if you follow God perfectly, you're still going to have tears. You're still going to have disappointment. You're still going to have loss. Think about it. If Israel can be punished by God, can't America be punished by God? If Israel can be disciplined, couldn't our church go through a time of discipline from God? If Abraham could wander, couldn't each one of us go through a period of wandering 
Ruth can experience famine. Might we experience famine? So that's the bad news of Psalm 126. We're told that there will be tears. There will be sorrow. But the good news is that Psalm 126 is also telling us that we can anticipate ascending joy. Um, Remember when I pointed out that six of the eight lines are either looking back at at good times or looking forward to good times? That's the good news. Joy is not a dying ember. That's the good news of Psalm 126. Let me give you an illustration. Have you guys ever seen a pilot light on a commercial stovetop? You walk into a kitchen when you're going approaching a really fancy stovetop, there's always that little tiny flame that's burning. It's not enough to do anything significant. It's not enough to cook a gourmet meal. But that pilot light is what's used to eventually fire up that stovetop so that a wonderful meal could be cooked. In other words, a pilot light's existence is based on its ability to ignite a greater heat. And Psalm 126 is a beautiful picture that even in our sorrow and tear-filled times, our joy as a Christian is like that pilot light. And it will ignite something in the future. It will burn hotter. There might just be absolutely minimal joy in your life right now. Take it from me. Take it from Psalm 126. It's a song of ascent. It's a song that God does hold love and joy in your future. On a personal note, in the past two years, I've lost my father. I've lost my mother-in-law. Our family dog died this summer. One of my Christian heroes died. Another one of my Christian heroes turned from his faith in podcasts about it. My pilot light of joy has never burned less. I've got to be honest with you guys, it's barely burning. It's just barely flickering. But Psalm 126 is a song that God has placed in the Bible for me in a time like this and for you in a low point as well. It's reminding us that the pilot light of our joy will ignite something great in the future. And even in the hard times, even in the dry times, even in the low times, we can anticipate that. That's a promise that Psalm 126 makes for us. It's true for me. It's, it's true for you guys as well. All right, there's three points in the, um, in the outline, in the bulletin. But uh, about an hour before church started, I realized that all three were really saying the same thing. So I combined three points that all said the same thing into two points that say the same thing. But give me, give me a break. It's just an eight-line poem. I, I, I do think there's something that's subtly different that we can point out uh, that's also encouraging, and it's this. A Christian can endure seasons of drought and sorrow, anticipating the abundant harvest of joy. And what I'm trying to say is I think Psalm 126 is pointing our attention to the disproportionate nature of sorrow and joy. Um, In other words, the goodness of our future is going to far exceed the meagerness of whatever it is that we're struggling through now. Let me wrap up with that. Let me me read verses 4, 5, and 6. It says, Restore, O Lord, our fortunes like wadis in the desert. Those who sow in tears and glad song will reap. He who walks along and weeps, the bearer of the seed bag will surely come in with glad song, bearing his sheaves. So let's, uh, let's wrap up talking about that. Uh, one commentator wrote this, explaining those lines a little bit more clearly. It says, this reference to wadis or dry water gulches uh, with the onset of the rainy season become filled with streams of water. 
It's an image for restoring the previous condition of a desolate landscape. The idea of rushing water after aridity prepares the ground for the image of sowing and reaping in the last two verses of the Psalms. In other words, uh, the original audience, people in that time and era, would have known that to grow things you need to have moist soil, uh, and for much of the year it was just too dry to grow anything. But during the rainy season, there would be these gulches, these, these, these little dried holes that would actually fill with water and make the landscape wet enough to actually grow things. Um, and so the idea is that, you know, of course, things might be so dry and inhospitable right now in your life that you can't imagine that anything would flourish out of it. We've probably all experienced that from time to time. And the poet's like, yeah, that might be true. But think about the wadis. Think about the wet season. Think about how no matter how dry things are right now and impossible to grow things, that's not how it always will be. And we know year after year from experience that there will be a rainy season. There will be a time of growth. Uh, I think the, the songwriter is, is pointing out two things here that are significant for us with this idea of a future abundance. First of all, he's kind of referring in the first few lines. He's saying, remember that God made Israel a more faithful and devoted people because of their experience in the exile. There was a time when Israel was next to nothing, that the leaders and the people were driven out of the land. But then they came back and God made Israel great and, and, and they were more devout and they were more faithful and they experienced God like never before. In other words, the poet is, is, is saying there was a dry time that led to a, to a, a flourishing time for our nation. And then he's, he's saying the same thing in a different way in the final two lines. He's saying, think about the farmer who goes out in the dry time and he's crying and life is hard and he doesn't think that there's going to be enough sustenance for the family and he's putting the seeds in the dry ground. But that same farmer who's, who's tearfully putting seeds in the dry ground comes back months later with sheaths of grain. Right? And, and what's the significance of grain? It becomes bread. Right? You don't eat bread alone. It's your family helps you make the grain into loaves of bread, and it's broken and it's eaten around the table. Uh, in other words, this this same character at the end of the poem, who's tearfully dropping seeds into the dry ground all alone, he comes back singing with all these armfuls of grain, armfuls of wheat that gets made into bread as the family is celebrating around the table. And so in both of these images, with Israel going into exile and coming back stronger than ever, and the farmer who's all alone, but then he's at the table full of grain, there's this idea that the joy in the future of the person who follows God exceeds just the material things that are causing pain and sorrow in your presence. Here's a final illustration of this abundance that we can look forward to in our future uh, my three boys are all colorblind, and I can talk about them freely now because they're all over across the street at Sunday school. Uh, and it can be really interesting to hear their thoughts on a world where they basically only see the primary colors without any shades, without any form of shades or shadowing. I mean, they, they see a red and they see a green, but that's it. They don't see just the countless variations of that. So within the last few days, one of them said to my wife, uh, I guess I just don't understand what the big deal is about rainbows. Everybody's always talking about them like they're so great. But they're not great. They're just like one funny, fuzzy color in the sky. Especially in Montana. Montana rainbows just aren't very special. Isn't that a little bit sad? 
That just like breaks our heart when we hear comments like that. Uh, but the thing that carries us through that sadness is that there are corrected glasses for red, uh, green color blindness. So uh, because we're busy and have four kids, we haven't really gotten around to it. But one of these days, we're going to buy three pairs of those corrective glasses. We're going to get in the car and we're going to go to Yellowstone, just a beautiful, picturesque, colorful landscape. Uh, and we're going to give them those glasses and for the first time in their life, they're going to see all the shades of the colors and maybe it'll be at prismatic springs or maybe there will actually be a rainbow that day. They're going to understand the full vibrancy of what they've been living without up till that point. And the truth is, even though it's like sad that a kid doesn't think a rainbow is a very big deal, like they don't really know what they're missing. But when they finally see the full colors of the spectrum, when they finally see the vibrancy of all the colors, there's going to be a joy and an abundance that far exceeds what they're missing out on now, not even really knowing what they're missing out on. What I want to point your attention to and wrap up with today is that Psalm 126, through that imagery of Israel in exile coming back in full glory, through that imagery of the farmer who's dropping seeds into the dusty ground but comes back with bushels of grain that becomes bread, there is an abundance of joy, a harvest of joy in our future that Psalm 126 tells us that we can all anticipate and we can all hold on to that far exceeds the dryness or the famine that we experience right now. If I was just a guy telling you that, you could just kind of be like, big deal, that's just somebody's words. But Psalm 126, Scripture, the Bible, is telling us that in our time of famine, in our time of tears, we can hold on to the hope that the abundance of joy in our future far exceeds the misery of the tears that we experience right now. I want to give the worship team a one-minute warning that we're about to be done here. But the final thing that I want to point out is this. I think there's another thing that's really significant about this farmer at the end of the song who's bringing back the harvest. And the songwriter could have just said that he was bringing back just the harvest, but he particularly says that it's sheaves of grain. And I think what's so special about that is grain gets turned into bread and bread hints at the abundance of what we enjoy at the Lord's Supper. Now, we're not celebrating the Lord's Supper today. We'll do that in a week or two to come. But there's something similar that a Christian can find joy in, in the Lord's Supper, and it's this. We come to the Lord's Supper. We celebrate communion. We, we, we come forward just thinking about maybe the, the, the little tiny scraps of good things that we have done that week. We belong to a church, we help our neighbor, we are good parents, we're good employees. But then when we come to the Lord's table and we, we have that, that reminder that, uh, that the bread that's broken for us represents Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. We understand that the, the tiny seeds or the scraps of righteousness that we bring to God are dwarfed by the abundance of righteousness that Jesus Christ then gives to us because of the resurrection. Um, in other words, uh, the end of Psalm 126 is a tiny foreshadowing of our greatest joy as a Christian. And that's that our tiny acts of goodness um, are exchanged with the, uh, the abundance of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So I hope this tiny little psalm, one that you could easily memorize, one that you could easily just write down and keep in your purse or wallet, wallet I hope it's an encouragement to you that in our tears and in our sorrow, Scripture makes a promise that there's 
there's, there's joy, and there's not only that, but an abundance of joy ahead. If you are going through a time of tears, I hope that Psalm 126 gives you a model that even in the low times, we can remember the joy in our past, and, and because of the promises of Scripture, we can anticipate joy in the future. Let's let that good news go through our head as we wrap up our service.